0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Authentically Orthodox, a tradition-bound faith in American life, written by Zev Aleph and published by Wayne State University Press in 2020, challenges the current historical paradigm in the study of Orthodox Judaism and other tradition-based Faith communities in the United States, paying attention to lived religion, the book moves beyond sermons and synagogues and examines the webs of experiences mediated by, uh, by any mem- any number of American cultural forces. Elif lucidly explores Orthodox Judaism engage- Orthodox Judaism's engagement with Jewish law, youth culture, and gender, and how this religious group has been affected. Its indigenous context. Zev Elif is a chief academic officer of Hebrew Theological College and associate professor of Jewish history at Turo College. I'm so uh, glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Zev.
2: Thanks for having me. This is great.
1: So, to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book?
2: Sure. Uh, so, my, my first book. Uh, was really centered around Reform Judaism in the 19th century. Uh, It was titled, uh, Who Rules the Synagogue? And its central theme was around concepts of power and authority, uh, principally around the Reform movement, again, 19th century, 1800s. Uh, And it made me think a lot about power dynamics and how religion summons or compels uh, its adherence into, into action. Uh, and I thought there was a really nifty, uh, study to be done on, uh, American Orthodoxy, this principally in the 20th century. The book has, uh, I think two articles that I had published previously, uh, and I intuited, you know what, some of that earlier work, it, it resonated with this theme. And so I, uh, I moved forward and I I developed a research plan uh, and some micro-histories to really uh, explore what we mean by authentic, what we mean by authority and authenticity in Jewish life, particularly the Orthodox community.
1: Right, right. So speaking of um, um, authentic and authenticity, this is... Uh, clearly a a really important theme for you in this book. Um, What did Rabbi Leonard Gewürz uh, mean by authentic Jews in 1961 when he wrote about this?
2: Right. So he wrote his book about authenticity, and he's not the first one, certainly. uh, Already back in Germany, Uh, uh, Hirsch and others were using authenticity to describe tradition-bound faith. Um, But what Leonard Gewürz, in, in a book, not sure how well it read it was at the time. Um, he speaks to a, an authenticity which I found really interesting. Uh, and it, it, I think it betokened a sentiment of Orthodox practitioners really around mid century, which isn't authenticity, isn't the type of faith that best approximates the religion of Moses or the Goan of Vilna. Doesn't mean a historical uh, assessment of how of a faith's fidelity to a more ancient time and climb but instead uh, this is the sociologist Regina Bendix uh, made this argument as well authenticity uh, speaks to a feeling something really hard for historians to uh, deduce to adduce um which is how do um, how does religion make me feel that what I am doing is correct not what, which religion is correct, but how do people in a faith community, how are they self-reassured that what they're doing is to them the most authentic uh, permutation of a religious experience?
1: All right. And is this the, the definition that you um, feel most comfortable with when you think of what authenticity means in the context of your study?
2: Yeah, from a scholarly perspective, I think it's really interesting. Is and, and I think it gets us beyond questions of uh, of editing religion of of historical change. I think, uh, and so much of my work is to um, not to argue with the great scholar of Jewish modern Jewish history, Yakov Katz, Jacob Katz, but is to complicate the narrative, particularly in the context of America, where we're talking about the New World. There was a blank slate, a tabula rasa, and what religion does, and and I'm trained as an American religious historian. So much of my work tries to map the American Jewish experience, the Jewish experience in America that is on to a broader religious landscape. When we talk about authenticity and how we can measure how historical figures, and by here I don't mean the elites, but the rank and file, I thought that that's a really comfortable way. For us to be more sophisticated about what we mean about tradition and religion.
1: Right. It's interesting because I think that both many Orthodox and certainly ultra Orthodox people, practitioners themselves, as well as I think a good number of non Orthodox Jewish people actually view the, 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 um, uh, um, Orthodox Judaism, very much in the model that it sounds like you're critiquing or rejecting. In other words, they view contemporary Orthodox Judaism as the closest approximation to what used to be in, um, you know, the kind of Judaism that that either was practiced in Eastern Europe, you know, a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, and even by extension, the kind of Judaism that Moses practiced, so to speak, that that that's I think- and
2: and that's not to be dismissed, right? That's not to be dismissed. A fidelity to a, a religious community might, might be based on on feeling of, this is how my grandparents, this is how my proverbial Bubby and Zadie did it, and if somebody's going to do it differently, how dare they? That's not how my great grandparents actualized their Judaism, and so that's not. To disagree, but I'll take another example, something that's not in the book, uh, take um, separation of church and state and public funds for, for Jewish day schools. So in immediate post-war period, nothing could have been more anathema. At the height of the so-called day school movement from the 40s until the 60s, no government funds. American exceptionalism, this is where I borrow from my teacher, Jonathan Sarna is predicated on a certain civic understanding of religion's place in the United States. And so, heaven forfend, should we try to um, retrieve government funding for our day schools? We're going to do it ourselves, because that would be to blur that separation. Moving into the 1970s and 1980s of identity politics, no, to the contrary. In an era of multiculturalism, we as a Particular community are entitled to government funds, whether they come in busing, within in paying for nutrition, whatever it might be, and and so that change. Now, here we're not talking about ritual; we're talking about that that point of departure of how we're going to fund the day school is predicated on how what is the most authentic link between religion and state in the United States, and in a span of a couple of decades. All of it changes. I'll give you another example that has nothing to do with orthodoxy. If you take a look at the reform response on homosexuality, much of it was changed. The perception was changed by whether or not a gay couple can um, can a uh, scaffold a family around their way of life. Nothing to do with scripture necessarily, and within the reform movement. But when we talk about what is the family unit supposed to look like, the reform movement. Fundamentally changes from the seventies to the eighties on the very serious issue of the gay community. They were uh, they had already offered resolutions uh, from a civil rights perspective, but it's the changed perspective on family life that changes. And so authenticity, as you point out, not always historically, but what feels right in the moment.
1: Right, right. So,
2: it's not, so therefore, it's not just orthodoxy; it's really everybody.
1: Right. Right. I guess the, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that it seems to me that with, I mean, you could think in terms of the, the changing attitudes towards homosexuality, uh, uh, if you think about the history of the American uh, Psychological Association, you know, how it changed radically uh, from including homosexuality in uh, the DSM, the the Diagnostic um, um, and Statistical Manual, basically calling it, a, you know, like a mental illness to, you know, rejecting that. Attitude and saying no. This is actually, uh, you know, a part of of, of quote unquote. And, and that's exactly
2: life. my point. When the DSM, when the DSM changes its policy, that is showing how American cultural and scientific and political and social forces are mediating how we as religion people, religion folk, are absorbing. That. And that is critically important in the American context to understand a moment in time.
1: Right, right. No, I understand that. I guess I'm just saying it's interesting to me because the, no one in the in the APA, fe- as far as I know, has ever felt that the APA represents the truest form of psychological understanding since the beginning of time. You know, in other words, they understand that they're a contemporary organization doing their best to make sense of the human psyche within the context of their period, and so on. Whereas Orthodox Judaism, this is my my original point, both for the practitioners as well as for many outsiders seem to have an uh, uh, an understanding that Orthodox Judaism itself as a form of, of faith is uh, either predicated on or strives to be or something, uh, the closest model to quote-unquote traditional or historical Judaism as it's existed for you know, hundreds and, and thousands of years. And so it's interesting to I me- think
2: sometimes you're right. You're right. I think you're absolutely right. But I also think that in the yeshiva world today, for instance,
1: for the um, I think it's
2: world, well re- right for the there is uh, an intuitive understanding that there are more people not talking about quantitatively, not necessarily qualitatively. quantitatively, there are more young men studying in a traditional yeshiva than ever before. And one's, and because of American affluence, because of the social systems in which all Americans and orthodox Jews included operate, uh, there has been a change regime. In uh, in the curriculum, in what is in what 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 particularly men Orthodox men are entitled to, and I think intuitively we understand that historically, again quantitatively not necessarily qualitatively, I'm not speaking to the rigor of Talmud study in Vilna compared to a yeshiva in the United in States this, in Europe, but sure, just in terms of, right in in in, uh, in sheer number, I think they would understand that historically we're in a different place. But what makes sense in our moment in time would be what is most authentic. And that has to do with the socioeconomics of 2021.
1: Sure. No, I understand. Um, to, to to step back a little bit for listeners who are not familiar with all of the the context that we're talking about, um, uh, let's begin with something simple. Um, how do you define Orthodox Judaism, for people that are not familiar with the uh, the specifics of the Jewish denominationalism in America?
2: So Orthodox Judaism, I think, very simply, would be the community that claims an adherence to Jewish law, the Talmud, and the Bible in the strictest possible way. Um that does it. In that sense, uh, it's not. I wouldn't call it a form of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism in Christianity refers to um, a biblicism, um, strict uh, fidelity to halakha, to Jewish law, um, owes to the uh, to to the process of Jewish law, and so. But but it's a community that places Jewish law front and center of their lives I mean, in terms of that framework. But it's also a, uh, a social construct, certainly.
1: Right, right. Um, uh, that certainly gives us uh, some food for thought. How this all works out. Um, to 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 set the stage a little bit more. Your I, your book has so much rich history. I, I, it's really um, a, a pleasure to read through. And um, obviously, we won't be able to cover all of it in the time today, but I'd like to to get to a couple of things. Um, First of all, you talk about a dispute between Jacob Mordechai and Isaac Harvey. Who were they? And and what exactly was their dispute about? Oh, it made me go back to the 19th century. So in the 1820s, Isaac Harvey,
2: not necessarily the most learned Jew, but a, uh, a very literate American, a playwright, a journalist, um, in Charleston, South Carolina, he is he spearheads the uh, Reformed Society of Israelites in Charleston, which at the time was one of the largest Jewish communities in the United States, about in, 500. In the 1820s, you're talking about? In the 1820s, correct. Um, and uh, yeah. on the other hand, uh, Jacob Mordecai is easily one of the top two most learned Jews in the United States. Uh, he takes umbrage had this idea of reform. um, And he's the very first one to describe himself as, at least that I'm aware of, as an Orthodox Jew, obviously using uh, nomenclature from Protestant America. And so that is the very beginning of this binary between reform and Orthodox. And throughout the 19th century, I argue, each one is laying claim to a certain level of authenticity whether it's this is what the bible meant and by saying by suggesting what the bible meant is to achieve a level of authenticity this is what the rabbis meant this whatever that that type of rhetoric that uh, discourse that happens and it's a cantankerous discourse throughout the 19th century um is all about authenticity
1: right and how did they ground their arguments, in terms of the kinds of sacred texts that they that they relied on, you argue that that was the way that they they kind of structured their arguments, or the sources that they used to claim authenticity. in America uh, was different than the way that rabbis previously or at the time in 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 the European context were were making these kinds of arguments.
2: Well, certainly. Uh, Jews in the United States were looked at as biblical people. Even Christians that want to know how to read the Bible, ask my neighbor, the Jew, how to read this. They were keepers of this book. Um, And so using, restoring the Bible, uh, the Torah, to to the apex of Jewish discourse, you know, to some listeners might sound, Very obvious, but no such thing. Um, Certainly uh, in the medieval modern period, and others have written about this, the Talmud. Uh, The oral tradition takes precedence. That's what's studied principally uh, in male yeshivas today. Uh, Orthodox yeshivas today is the Talmud. Um, The Bible, on the other hand, because of what it represents to America, America is this biblical country. Abraham Lincoln explains in the second inaugural uh, that both sides read the same Bible. It's a biblical war of interpretation, particularly around slavery in that case. Um, so the Bible is restored to that heightened place in Jewish religious discourse.
1: Right. And what innovation did American rabb- Orthodox rabbis introduce in the 19th century inspired by their Christian counterparts?
2: Well, if you think, it's not just America. But, uh, rabbis as well. you Think about the sermon? The sermon was an innovation. Um, uh, in in more ancient times, a rabbi delivered a sermon maybe twice a year, before the high holidays and before Passover. Um, but when uh, it comes to the every week sermon, that's something pretty much brand new. Um, the Jewish educational system um, starts to develop a little more fully. Um, Sunday school, certainly. Uh, in the 19th century, um, as public schooling becomes de jour um Jews take to it. These are the golden citadels. It's not until much later that uh when the Catholics developed the parochial school, the Jews absorbed that. Um but certainly a certain way of life, a certain dress. Uh rabbis nineteenth century wore canonicals. But so did Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch wear canonicals. In Germany. Um, so sir in Germany, yes. So uh you have um in terms of style canonicals of dress,
1: canonicals are the the formal attire the robes. that pastors yes. christian pastors were wearing at the time
2: correct yes thanks for clarifying yes right so rabbis so are all wearing the trappings it right and so the trappings of, of what religion ought to look like when a congregation is ready to move past the storefront they remodel a church which has moved the a, congreg- a church moved from one con- space to another um so a in fact that's how uh Isaac Mayer Wise, the great architect of Reform Judaism, how he uh, separ- separates—he, uh, excuse me—he collapses men and women together, he gets rid of separate seating, not out of any theological paradigm, but because uh, his congregation in Albany had purchased uh, a site that used to be a church. They did not have separate views, So We said we're going to continue this way. Uh, the pragmatism of American Jewish life, um, I think, singled it out among its. Uh, other uh, other sites around the globe
1: right and um, uh, your your book includes as you mentioned uh, um, um, uh, a whole bunch of micro histories that look at you know individual fascinating uh, uh, moments in American Jewish, Orthodox history. Um, what is the, the the broad theme that all of these micro histories, in your mind, um, uh, um, uh, substantiate?
2: Well, I take there are nine micro histories um, within three different sections, um, having to do with uh, Orthodox schooling and education, having to do with Halacha, Jewish law, and then gender, particularly around masculinity. I thought that much of the scholarship, I don't disagree with that scholarship, have focused on how feminism has, uh, has impacted on uh, American Judaism and American Orthodoxy, either the resistance to it or the absorption of it. But I thought that masculinity is something that we take for granted. Male space or something—that's that third section. But what I what I try to argue and this was—I uh, try to be as interdisciplinary as I could—is showing how legal political forces. So, for example, the ability to wear a yarmulke while playing high school basketball, actually where I am caps. in Chicago, Illinois, skull caps. Yes, um, uh, and in the legal fight of whether or not you have to wear a yarmulke and what that what, what meaning is taken out of that debate, which ultimately uh, had a chance but was denied uh, to be taken up by the United States Supreme Court in uh, the ni- early 1980s. Um, that debate is charged by expectations of Jewish identity. Of course, we wear Jews wear a yarmulke, men that is, in this case. Um, th- that is how we exercise our identity in this period of multiculturalism. Um, I demonstrate uh, regionalism makes a big difference. Uh, why a school in Baltimore, a modern Orthodox school in Baltimore, rises and falls with certain expectations of a very indigenous Catholic ecclesiastical culture. Also another feature is folkways. How traditions, this is in the area of halacha, Jewish law. And I look at a, uh, maybe, uh, an over, I think an overlooked uh, uh, interesting point, which is peanut oil. Which may or may not be used according to who you asked for the the context of this chapter on Passover it might be forbidden. Um, and how different halakhic, this Jewish law folk ways migrate from Europe, one from Eastern Europe and another one from Hungary and ultimately from Israel. How that impacts uh food ways in Jewish life. And I take themes, um I take themes uh from American culture. And I look at how that is mediated, how that mediates, excuse me, and how that interacts with religious life. And that's the common theme right throughout.
0: Right. So. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Uh, um, uh, uh, Thank you for that. So um, speaking of peanut oil, what exactly was the debate over, and why was there a question about whether or not peanut oil would be permissible for Orthodox Jews on the Passover holiday?
2: So the reason why this, I don't think, I've made an argument, I think a cogent one, why this is not just a pedantic issue, is because there's something called kitniot. It is a an extra juridical, an extra-Halachic matter on Passover developed by Ashkenazic, that's German, Eastern European rabbis in the 13th and 14th centuries, uh, which is a stringency that, um, I should start from the very beginning, on Passover, Halacha, Jewish law, dictates that Jews cannot consume or own, for that matter, uh, leavened bread. They have matzah instead. It's not leaven. There's no yeast. Um, there was concern in the 13th, beginning in earnest in the 13th century, uh, among uh, Ashkenazic, that's again, Germanic rabbinic authorities, uh, that other items, legumes, beans, peas, um um, may have uh, well there are two possibilities number one uh, they may have kernels of wheat inside when you uh, when you produce them when you bake them they could produce chametz leavened bread uh, then the other possible concern is that you can make these legume items these food items food stuff into something that might appear like bread and people become confused on Passover and consume bread so those are the two reasons now Certain foods were unknown to Jews in the 13th century. One of them, it's an American product crop, is peanuts. Peanuts don't make it to Europe until the end of the 19th century. And so and peanut oil, particularly after World War II, because the U.S. Department of Agriculture is trying to preserve other sources of oil for the war effort. Peanut oil was not good to, uh, for tanks, I suppose. Um, so all of a sudden it becomes in vogue. And Planter's Peanuts, for example, produces a uh, Passover oil. They are the Passover oil, uh, do they contend? And all of this is to say is that this is an extra textual. The Gemara, the Talmud, does not speak about uh, kidney oak whatsoever. And so this is a really great way, I think, to understand rabbinic intuition, what is or is not acceptable. And whereas the Eastern European folk way uh, proffers a lenient position, in the early 20th century, uh, in the post-Holocaust period, a Hungarian folkway. In fact, there was a, a speech delivered in Hungary uh, by the grandfather of the Grand Rabbi of Satmar of the Satmarov that outlawed peanuts when it finally appeared in in uh, Hungary, beginning of the 20th century. Um, so they took these things very very seriously, and so you see how competing folkways um, militate against one another, and you under and you can you know, you can remove the, hal- the halachic logic, the Talmudic logic, you, can, and you other areas you can say, well, this position just seemed more cogent to another. But here, this is, this is above the page of the Talmud. And so you really get to see rabbinic intuition combating with one another uh, in the 20th century. So that's why I thought it was particularly interesting and in how eventually, uh, I, I think at our moment, there is no... Uh, Kosher supervising agency, which authorizes uh, peanut oil. This is uh, only uh, forty years after uh, Planters was considering itself the
1: Passover oil. So the Hungarians won, is what you're saying, for the moment. The Hungarians won again, and it was, and
2: part of it was an Israeli way. Uh no less than uh, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, the uh, really the first Chief Rabbi of Eretz Israel of Israel wasn't in Israel the time he dies in 1935. Um, but um, uh, he, he works on, uh, he, he fights desperately to use cottonseed oil when other oils, uh, because of drought, were no longer available and used the rabbi in Yaffa. Um, and he combated this. Um, that's evidence that the Israeli folkway was not hospitable to uh, new uh, foodways either. And so in a post-67 world, uh, 1967 that is, um, the Hungarian folkway, bolstered by an Israeli folkway, um, absolutely vanquishes that Eastern European variety. Yes,
1: right, right. Really? Maybe I'm over dramatizing. <laughs> no, well, no. I, I, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, so, so thank you for for. I mean, one
2: after, after all. What? made into chapter one. So I was sort of uh, hoping that people would enjoy it so they can get to chapters two through nine. Uh, so I
1: was banking I, I, on that. It, it worked mm-hmm. for me. Um, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, speaking of uh, chapter two, uh, you talk about the status of, of bat mitzvahs, the coming of age celebrations for young girls yes. and um, how uh, the orthodox um, um, understanding and appreciation of these uh, ritual celebrations uh, has uh, uh, evolved tremendously since the 1970s. What was the status of these ritual celebrations at the time, and how have they evolved among the Orthodox?
2: The very first bar mitzvah ceremony we know of was for Judith Kaplan in the early 1920s, the daughter of Rabbi Mordechai Kaplan, Um, a prominent member of the left flank of the conservative movement. Eventually, he and his son-in-law, Ira Eisenstein, found what we call today Reconstructionist Judaism, but it was considered to be a conservative ritual. Reform had confirmation ceremonies uh, modeled after a certain Protestant uh, ritual um, for um, boys and girls more advanced, usually in their late teens. Um, Orthodoxy had the concept of a bat mitzvah in principle of when she reaches the age of maturity does a 12 year old girl, but not a ceremony equivalent to the bar mitzvah. The bar mitzvah then was a conservative thing for all intents and purposes. Conservative um, Judaism. This is where I go. Bar- the, the, the conservative, conservative Judaism denomination. Not yes, yes, thank you. yes. yes. And so, but it becomes a very useful tool for Orthodox rabbis in the hinterland, right, in the American frontier. Another important American historical concept, Frederick Jackson Turner, of course, coins the term long ago to demonstrate how the periphery can influence the center. And while I demonstrate that New York Jews are fully unaware of the popularization of the Bat Mitzvah ceremony for 12 year old girls in Orthodox synagogues in the 1950s and 1960s, it's happening. It's happening because young families with young children children, some of them might be girls, eventually to turn 12 years old, might appreciate such a thing. Um, And because there needs to be a certain level of partnership with other spaces of Jewish life, reform and conservative, that it makes good sense. Now, not necessarily the bat mitzvah ritual as constructed in other conservative, eventually reform too, circles, but how can Orthodox Judaism architect a bat mitzvah ceremony that would be halachically legitimate or authentic, but was seen as absolutely necessary to compete in the Orthodox hinterland. And eventually that's an example of how the periphery influences the center and New York Jews come to embrace it again with a certain level of variety and circumspection as well.
1: All right. And and so what does happen? I mean, uh, uh, in the 1970s, uh, it seems to be um, still very much um, kind of a contested, um, or opposed sure. um, a concept, but today among the Orthodox and even the ultra Orthodox, I know from my my own uh, background in the in the Hasidic ultra Orthodox community, all of my sisters had some kind of Bat Mitzvah celebration, not. Uh, Uh, you know, identical to the bar mitzvah celebration for the the boys where they go to, uh, they they read from the Torah in the synagogue itself, but some form of um, celebration, a significant public celebration nonetheless. So how did that, uh, those uh, attitudes and practices shift so dramatically uh, over the course of a relatively short period of time, less, uh, you know, less than than fifty right.
2: years. Absolutely. And this so this is the exact opposite of our peanut oil story, and speaks to your issue of what do we mean by authenticity. Whereas the the issue of the permissibility of peanut oil on Passover is forgotten, so too is the thorny politic of bot mitzvah. Once it is authenticated in the hinterland, it seems good. Oh, this works. People, Orthodox Jews aren't becoming conservative Jews because of B'ad Mitzvah. They're staying within the fold. It has proved its bona fides, and it can be migrated effectively to the Orthodox community in the uh, in the East,
1: yeah.
2: in, in the in the Tri-State area, and elsewhere. It also needed some time to be accepted in Boston and Atlanta for a variety of reasons. And so that's what's so interesting. And that's why I don't accept this idea of uh, of this unilateral so-called sliding to the right. It's far more complicated. Jews are moving in all sorts of directions. It matters in which arena we're talking about. If we're talking about foodways, it might be moved in one way. Um, and if we're talking about uh uh, lived religion and culture and ritual, and might move in a separate direction. It's the mess. It's why being a scholar of American religion is so much fun.
1: It's quite messy. In, indeed, indeed. Um, and uh, one thing that, that that jumps out at me, speaking of the the construction of authenticity um, is that, as we were saying before, that for something to be quote-unquote authentic, it doesn't mean that it actually existed in a previous era in Jewish history. It just means that it feels authentic for any number of reasons. And related to that, um, we see in the case of the bat mitzvah uh, that possibly in order for something to ultimately uh, be understood, a ritual or or a practice to be understood as being authentic, it's what's really important. One of the things that are really important is that once it becomes an accepted practice, there's almost a requirement for a kind of amnesia that we need to forget that it was ever a contested issue. That for it to feel fully authentic, we have to believe, oh yes, this is the way it always was, uh, and that to even kind of bring up the history of its contestation, uh, maybe uh, creates a, a, a some kind of um, uh, uh, challenge to its authenticity, current uh, authentic in other state. it's it's
2: easy to have us write it, and it's much more it's much easier to have historical amnesia in America. Right, a relatively young. Uh, for for um, this is not to say about indigenous Native Americans, but in terms of what we think about now in terms of a, a being American, um, a relatively uh, nascent culture. Uh, we don't well, we we don't have a landscape filled with castles, for example. <laughs> um, it, it's it, it's, 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 it's much easier to achieve that level of amnesia, but no, not necessarily very different than with the Copernican turn, for example, trying to demonstrate. No, no, no. We always knew in the Bible, in our Christian thought or our Jewish thought, uh, that Copernicus was right. We're going to forget about that earlier thought now, take some time. Um, with science, with Darwin as well, um, social constructs. Um, so I think we always it's always convenient to have a certain level of amnesia. You right. say that about quarterbacks. It's always good to forget when you throw an interception. <laughs> all
1: right, all right. Uh, you forget the bad plays. Um, it helps you go forward, uh, certainly uh, sometimes. Um, uh, you mentioned already this issue of the um, the. Lawsuit related to the wearing of yarmulkes, the the male uh, uh, the, the skull caps that men in the Orthodox community wear, um, and the the, the lawsuit uh, Minora versus Illinois uh, High School Association in uh, was in 1980. In the 1980s, why was it that this issue of the of the the the, the legal protection for Orthodox uh, high schoolers to wear these uh, skullcaps while playing basketball? Why did this only come up in the 1980s? In other words, what were Orthodox Jewish mm-hmm. uh, young men or boys uh, doing or, you know, prior to that in terms of their 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 yarmulke wearing uh, practices? And so
2: according to the strict letter of the law, uh, halakha dictates that a uh, male, men have to adorn a skull cap when praying and eating and studying Torah. But walking down the street, one need not do that. In fact, well-known is that uh, he's come up several times now, Rabbi Samson, Raphael Hirsch in Frankfurt demanded of his students that when they're studying general studies, secular topics in his day school, they are not allowed to wear yarmulkes. Uh, so much has been written on the history of yarmulke but it's not until the 1980s in which it was a source of Jewish identity of Jewish pride to wear a yarmulke so in that era of Ronald Reagan of multi he this word of a number of times now multiculturalism it would only have appeared in the 70s or in the 80s and the worst, there were other lawsuits taken up about an orthodox Jew in the military particularly in the Air Force two cases that I'm aware of of whether or not they can wear a yarmulke there. Actually, he's, both cases, they're turned down for the sake of uniformity a uh, value in the Air Force. Um, but that's why it's happening in the 1980s. And the argument, it's not as if uh, the Orthodox Jews are betraying the textual traditions of halacha. I mean, too easy to suggest that. It's much more complicated. The yarmulke stance: it's freighted and it's filled with so much more meaning of fidelity to a way of life. And how can an Orthodox high school, this is Fastening election wasn't called yet. Yeshiva High School, associated with the Hebrew Theological College in Chicago, was a joint lawsuit together with Ida Crown Jewish Academy, the two major Orthodox high schools in the city at the time. Um, And uh, they're arguing, how can we be Orthodox and not don yarmulkes while playing ball? And that's what the lawsuit's all about.
1: All right. All right. i I think it's just fascinating again thinking about authenticity um, I think when uh, a lot of people think about Orthodox Jews today uh, Orthodox Jewish men the fir- one of the first things that come to mind is that these are the people that walk around you know that, that we are their their yarmulkes, uh all the time you know when they're in business when they're walking down the street um, And I think it's just fascinating to to reflect on the fact that this was not always the the, the way that things were done. Even in relatively recent history, uh, many, if not most, people who considered themselves and were considered by others to be Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jewish men, did not wear their yarmulke in, in, in public spaces.
2: And yet, by the 1980s, it did not feel right. It wasn't authentic to look at earlier historical models. And that's what I find so interesting about how this augurs the place of authenticity in religious life.
1: Right, right. And speaking of of um, a, a youth culture and youth, um, you know, young people, what they were doing religiously, uh, you talk about an episode uh, uh, where the Mighty Mites um, appeared on a 1963 uh, television game show and, um, who were the mighty mites and why was this such a significant moment in American Jewish, American Orthodox Jewish yeah. uh, culture?
2: So people older than I in the Orthodox community remember this quite well. And this is actually that, the, the article that first appeared. This is what germinated. This chapter germinated this idea of authenticity. Uh, so you have this Yeshiva College, actually Yeshiva University, because the team captain was a student from Stern College for Women. Team Captain was a woman, which is quite interesting. Um, uh, they compete on the College Bowl. They first, as I recall, take down Louisville and then uh, a team from uh, UNLV and then lose to Temple, which obviously has certain religious resonance. And then the team <laughs> captain had a very Jewish sounding name. Um, um, but they, uh, they are the darlings for a moment, at least. More than 15 minutes of fame, though, for sure of the Jewish world and the Orthodox world, that they can compete on this relatively new thing called the television. Uh, it's only that uh, it makes its way into the American households in the 1950s, or the 1960s, so it's, all, it's only now an established item, piece of furniture, and they're competing. And they're wearing yarmulkes. They insisted upon it. Not the uh, woman. Um, not the woman. Uh, the, she, wore a, she was married, so she wore a hat. Uh, on her head, um, the, the faculty advisor was now wearing a yarmulke, which was uh, apparently in uh, not a good taste to uh, some Yeshiva University officials. Um, but it's this great moment in which Jews have made it; they are they're in a in, in a game show, no less, a popular one uh, with uh, sponsored by General Electric, <laughs> uh, and, and they're and they're doing it well. And they know the answers. And the questions aren't ones based in the Talmud, but are part of um, highbrow American culture. They're asking about the Tudor dynasty. And so it's a terrific moment in which all eyes are on very visibly Orthodox Jews.
1: All right. And and you feel that this helped uh, either either promote or solidify the idea that people – uh, that the Orthodox Jews in America are able to be both kind of fully Orthodox and at the same time very much a part of the broader American culture and society.
2: Right, I think so. I mean, I saw, I, I felt echoes of it and, um, two years ago. It actually has a, a sad ending, or at least a, a deflating ending. Is um, also at Yeshiva University when its basketball team. Have made it many rounds into the uh, March Madness, into the Division Three tournament, and I think you know as we're recording, they haven't lost in uh, now a year and a half. I think they're thirty-three and out, thirty-six and out in the in the streak. And that, in returning to basketball, that in with athletic prowess and again, Division Three. So it's, let's be clear: they're not competing against Duke and Michigan, um, <laughs> but they're winning, and they're cool. And they're hitting three and they're dunking. <laughs> That's an incredible thing. And the entire uh, – you got, you got the feeling, again, about authenticity, that the American Jewish world, certainly the Orthodox one, was rallying around these basketball players. It was a really fascinating
1: moment. Right, right. I, I, I hear your excitement as someone who doesn't follow sports of any sort. Uh, wow. I, I was unaware of these uh, tremendous uh, athletic achievements, uh, but it's certainly uh, interesting to reflect on. Um, so uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, you write about the struggles of... Over women's Talmud study and women's prayer groups uh, among the Orthodox. For people that are not familiar with the Orthodox community, uh, it might seem uh, rather perplexing. Isn't Talmud study? Uh, in uh, understood by everyone as being an inherently good thing for all Jews to do, including women. What what exactly was the, the 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 conflict over in terms of women's participation in Talmud study and prayer groups?
2: Now, historically, and this jibes with other literacy levels in other faith communities and other general communities, is that the Talmud was designated for the men's curriculum. Uh, and that's how yeshivas were traditionally uh, for a, a, a male space. And what I argue in the chapter is that the campaign to provide Jewish, advanced Jewish literacy, and that's what the Talmud has come to represent, advanced Jewish literacy uh, to women, was really not as much about feminism. The same people, for example, who are championing this, Rabbi Soloveitchik, was opposed to the ordination of women. was not about feminism um, but really was about encroaching on male space and what does a space look like and so um, i look at this battle which um i I track it from the 50s onward but really uh the central moment is in the 70s and 80s uh when women's talmud again comes to yeshiva university but also to the day schools um what it looks like um and that uh, balance, that gender dynamic, um, I think, was critically important to creating a structure. It always has, gender is always at uh, at the forefront of religious studies, and I think no different here. But here, not about creating a women's space, but looking at how um, it impacts male space.
1: What were the arguments against women studying Talmud?
2: Oh, well, you have a proof text, for example, in tractate Sota, which says uh, from um, the Talmud as much. Right from the Talmud itself, um, but it was it was really a cultural a culture clash. Excuse me, it was um, it was a question of what looks right, uh, and whose rabbi are you going to believe? And uh, certainly, uh, the modern Orthodox had a greatest of all champions from their perspective, and Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, the great dean of the. Uh, modern orthodox he didn't like the term necessarily modern orthodox but uh, his students did, uh, of modern orthodox rabbinate um, and yet that wasn't enough and, and i argue again using folk ways that's only when it is um, uh, accepted in israel uh, by women principally does it migrate in the united states so it's a question of continuities and discontinuities um, so it's really a question of what looks right. Rabbi um, we have his letters. Uh, he uh, is rather uh, disturbed, even outraged, at the prospect of how can you deny any Jew uh, requisite levels of uh, Jewish belief and Jewish literacy, and that's what he thought the Talmud represented, access to uh, a full-fledged understanding of one's Jewishness.
1: Right. And what did the struggle over women's prayer groups look like? What What were the contours of that of that conflict?
2: Is that I. I struggle with this I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. So I, um, this was an, a, a, a good chapter to explore and to really test the limits of this method um, of lived religion. Because here you have these women um, who were told that they aren't being orthodox, they're being feminists. On the other hand, these women said they, they didn't use the word. They called it the F word. Did these women? We didn't use the word feminism. They, they uh, Rivka Hout, one of its leaders, says that we wanted to pray at a conservative synagogue. We would, but we don't want to. <laughs> and they're looking for to be authenticated. They're looking for Orthodox rabbinical groups to understand that we don't we we don't want egalitarianism. We want a separate women's space once a month um, to pray. Uh, we will follow. We will um, make an understated as far as ritual is concerned we will not recite certain items which are reserved only for a quorum of 10 men and nevertheless the pushback and it surprises them but it becomes the heated issue of the modern orthodox community in the 1980s it really does because it it, it interacts with uh again this conservative uh, the uh, the rise of the moral majority and the Christian right at this time. Um, it happens at a v- cur- just a, an absolutely curious moment. Rabbi Selavachik, we just talked about, retires in the middle of it. Uh, Conservative Judaism has just started to ordain women in 1983, 1984, 1984 in earnest. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's just this really freighted moment in which women's prayer groups, a very, not a very large movement, um, it, it is receiving, uh, all of this interest because of everything that it has come to represent about women's space, about male space. How can you call yourself a women's tefila group, a women prayer group, women's minyan? Are they, they said, we're not a minion, a minion, a quorum, a Hebrew word for quorum is men. We're a prayer group. And it's so interesting about how the dynamics of how they use, um, uh, Verbiage; they use language as best as possible to separate itself, to make itself authentic, kosher, and nevertheless, you know, and nonetheless, the backlash.
1: Right, and wh- I'm just curious: what's the status today of Orthodox of, of women's prayer groups uh, uh, among uh, Orthodox? So
2: it's <laughs> it's no longer the burning issue. Uh, you know, there's been much ado over uh, what we call partnership minyanim where men and women are participating together and women at different levels. <clears throat> Started in Israel, migrated in, uh, to the United States. Um, what's so interesting is that when you follow up with some of these women and from the women's prayer group era, from that epic, they want no part of partnership. Anymore. That level of egalitarian, we, they never wanted that in the first place. There are still women's prayer groups, but they're no longer that issue. Uh, in the communion, partly because, uh, to a certain extent, um, that momentum was squashed. Some do exist. I don't want to suggest otherwise, Um, but both in terms of who's interested, and it's also a different generation who is uh, executing these things, um, who's interested and what it means, it's no longer the burning issue. Some do exist, certainly.
1: Right. Uh, well, there always be-
2: attempts to revive things.
1: Right. Well, before I, I can't let you go without asking you about Country Yassi's song, Deaf Man in the Stiebel, mm-hmm. as someone who uh, uh, was a, a, a very uh, avid fan of the popular uh, ultra or orthodox singer Country Yassi and the, this particular song. Could you tell us uh, a, a little bit about the song? And how uh, just how authentic, authentically Orthodox Jewish, is this song?
2: Right now, now I know you read the book cover to cover because that's the (laughs) conclusion. Um, (laughs) So there is this, there is this song that I that I I played for my students. In fact, I play it every uh, every semester when I teach a course like this on Orthodox Judaism in the United States. Um, And there is. The song "Deaf Man in a and I confess, I I cry every time. I cry every time about uh, about a, a cantor uh, who um, he, he's uh, he's late on Yom on Yom Kippur, the the holiest day of the year, because he's found out his father has just died. His father is is the deaf man in the shiebel in the small synagogue space somewhere in Eastern Europe. Um, who is he's deaf, so he while he always sat in the back listening. Presumably listening, but not really, because he can't hear anything. At least witnessing his son, the talented cantor, pray every Sabbath, every holiday, every Yom Kippur. Um, He's died. Uh, And he's late, is this cantor? The rabbi asks, How come so late? And he says, uh, My father just died. So. The lyric goes, "It's the first time that my father's heard me pray." and Now I'm already getting teary-eyed. But <laughs> <Me too. laughs> The song is patterned after a, a 1970s, I believe, song about blind man in the bleacher, and it's not about a canter. It's about a quarterback, about a football player um, whose father. It's a different, uh, a, a different deficiency. It's not uh, that is. Um, it's not about uh, being deaf. It's now the blind man in the bleacher. He's never seen his son throw, pass a football. Now that he's in heaven, he's going to win. He does. Uh, leads his team to victory in the second half. It's not um, – it, where the rabbi asked, how come so late? Again, a certain uh, inflected yeshivish Yiddishism there. The song in the 70s is, where the hell you been? So it's a little <laughs> more rough. Um, <laughs> to the coach ask, um, the, uh, and it's the first time that my, my father's seen me play. And I still cry. <laughs> it's still moving. Even though it's a fiction. The song is borrowed. It is transformed from a very popular American folksy song. But that's not the point. The point is that it, it, it pulls at your heartstrings. It's a way to measure emotion. Uh, and in, to me, it's, um, it, it's glaringly obvious that authenticity plays such a pivotal role in our American religious experience.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, you've really given us so much to think about. Uh, Okay, here's the last question. Um, uh, Could you tell us about a new project that you're currently working on?
2: Yeah, so so there's a book uh, under review right now, a manuscript under review on uh, football we've talked so much about sports, but basketball, here's about football. It's about a, um, a Protestant, a Catholic, and a Jew. It sounds like a joke. Um, In the 1920s, who transform uh, the hierarchy of Harvard uh, culture, when Harvard was uh, the the greatest football program in the country. It's been a long time. It's been a hundred years. And uh, how uh, Bill Bingham, This Mill Hand, who uh, he has a very very Calvinist type of uh, New England last name, Bingham, but he's not that type of Bingham. And Eddie Casey, a a fellow, a Catholic fellow from uh, Natick, Massachusetts, one of 15 children from a very pious Catholic family. And Arnold Harwin uh, from a Jewish family uh, in Chicago, actually, and how the three of them uh, inject a certain level of uh, pluralism into uh, the, the high towers of, uh, of Harvard's campus. Uh, so that's hopefully gonna, be, gonna appear soon, looking forward. And, uh, and then my, right now I'm thinking a lot about, uh, not necessarily a Jewish question, but one about American religion and American culture. More about American culture is the concept of greatness. Uh, in America, we like to talk about the greatest of all time. Who was the greatest president? Who was the greatest athlete? Who was the greatest musician? You know, in, in England, you know, there was some discussion about the Beatles, but we in America made the Beatles the greatest of all time, replacing Elvis Presley uh, in, in the popular consciousness. Um, and I explore, I want to explore Mickey Mouse versus Donald Duck, for example, and I, I can go on and on about this. Uh, <laughs> greatest women of all time. Amer- Americans, greatest scientists, uh, are obsessed with these ranking orders. And I want to explore. I don't want to solve the dilemma. I'm not interested in, uh, in, in, in uh, Lincoln versus Washington or uh, uh, Elvis versus the Beatles or Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady out there. I think it's uh, Payne Manning over Tom Brady. Um, <laughs> my, but my, my point is to understand what's going on in the discourse. Why do we care so much about it? It's not so much of why is Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player of all time, even though he absolutely is. It's a question of what is happening in the 80s and 90s around race and culture that is provoking Americans to have that conversation.
1: Wow, that sounds fascinating. Um, So uh, thank you so much, Zev, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thanks for having me. This is a blast. (laughs) That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.